Hey, uh, welcome back to another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast, the podcast about uh, sports and politics. Once again, I'm Matt Andrews. I'm a professor of history here at uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Jonathan Weiler, also a professor here at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Jonathan and I both have uh, a, a, an abiding interest in the links between sports and politics. And so we're very excited to be joined today by our favorite sport historian, Victoria Jackson. She's been on the show before. Uh, Victoria Jackson is a professor of sport history at Arizona State University. Uh, as opposed to Jonathan and I, she actually has real sports credentials. Uh, she was a, a national champion 10,000 meter runner while at Arizona State. Uh, so it's great to have an actual athlete on our show. Victoria, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Hey, you know, if you play sports, you're an athlete. And if you like sports, you like sports. So, <laughs> but great there to be go. here. <laughs> uh, Victoria, I, I wish I've ever asked you this. Uh, why did you win the national championship for Arizona State and not for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where uh, Victoria was an undergrad? What's the story there? Yeah, I mean, my story sounds a bit ironic. Um, considering the time that I was a Tar Heel uh, and contrasting it with others' experiences. But, you know, I'm a beneficiary of collegiate amateurism. Um, my coach, Michael Whittlesey, the distance coach, and the director of track, Dennis Craddock, um, put me on a medical release after my sophomore year, knowing that I was likely going to go to grad school. And that meant if I was to compete again, it would be at a different university. And they were very supportive of that. And so when I went on the medical, I got to keep my scholarship. It returned my scholarship to the track program because there's a limit on how many scholarships the team um, can have. And uh, they helped in, you know, the ACC and UNC helped me get a sixth year at ASU as well because we needed to have that coordinated. Um, so again, that, that sounds strange when we hear these stories about athletes being held hostage when they're trying to transfer. And you know, I graduated from UNC and then was in a PhD program when I um, was competing for the Sun Devils for two years. So yeah, I'm, I, I am an example of how the system is supposed to work <laughs> with the educational mission and serving students um, at the core. And that, that's a big part of why I feel a responsibility to make sure other students who play sports um, get to have the opportunities that I've enjoyed. Um, so Victoria, one of the, among the things we wanted to talk to you about today is this major change in the college athletic landscape, which is that as of July 1st, uh, athletes became eligible to make money off their names, images, and likenesses. This is something that the NCAA had fought tooth and nail for many years. Um, but it seems that, and Matt and I actually talked about this earlier in the summer, that after the Supreme Court ruling in June, even though that ruling wasn't directly about NIL, uh, that the writing was on the wall, other forces for many years have been sort of pushing us in this direction. And so as of July 1st, it was now possible for athletes to make sponsorship deals and otherwise earn money. We've already heard that, for example, the Alabama quarterback before he played his first game or started his first game in Alabama had made over a million dollars or something like that. And so we really are in a whole new world now. And I think for starters, we'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how we got to that point and maybe also reflect some on how that's playing out so far 
compared to how folks thought it might play out before before that all started? Yeah, um, I mean, you're right. Like what was the final kind of straw that broke the camel's back was that wild and surprising um, Supreme Court opinion. And, and even that oral arguments were just so shocking <laughs> in um, NCAA versus Austin. And so, you know, that was not about name, image, and likeness. It was about whether schools capping um, the amount of scholarship money athletes get at um, up through the full cost of attendance, but not exceeding that um, tethered to education benefits, whether or not that cap was an antitrust violation. And I mean, it's surprising in that the conservative justices were the ones like setting each other up to slam dunk and blast amateurism. And, and you know, we have this unanimous opinion um, after that. And then a, a unbelievable <laughs> concurring from Brett Kavanaugh, just really chastising um, the fraud <laughs> of, of collegiate amateurism and um, saying, yes, absolutely, this is an antitrust violation. And so, um, you know, kind of Cliff Notes version is that there had been a, a huge effort by the schools, by the NCAA, by, by Mark Ennert, by their allies to try to get um, kind of allies in Congress to, to get an antitrust exemption and to get protections in place. And we heard all of this talk about guardrails, like, um, okay, well, we have to say that students should be able to make money from third parties, but we need strong guardrails in place. And every time I heard guardrails, I, I just heard paternalism, like these athletes need <clears throat> protection from some amorphous, dangerous thing that we can't really, you know, <laughs> put our finger on, but we're gonna use these scare tactics to justify um, all of the control that we've had around, um, you know, athletes' actions. Um, and that, the, I think because of, of the unanimous nature of the opinion and the rhetoric in those oral arguments, um, I think that's what really forced, um, you know, the major leaders and decision decision makers, Mark Emmer among them and the conference commissioners and university presidents to say, okay, we're just gonna throw our hands up. And instead of um, just allowing state laws to start to go into effect, we're gonna say all athletes <laughs> at our schools are gonna be able to, to engage in this way. And so the, the irony is that um, some of the states whose laws were going into effect first actually um, restricted their athletes more than in the place where you know a lot of journalists were calling it a wild, wild west, which again, it's not really that. It's um, you know athletes being able to make money independently from third parties. It's restoring the students who play sports the economic rights of all students. And we hear um, comparisons to music majors a lot. And you know when I was at UNC, I played in the orchestra, and I had friends in orchestra who were music majors, so they were technically amateurs too. <laughs> And they played gigs on the weekends and, you know, nobody came knocking on their door to take away their scholarship and their amateur eligibility <laughs> to be a college musician anymore. And, um, you know, if, if I were to um, compete in a road race and make some prize money, that would have happened to me. And so, you know, if we're, it, it exposes how for so long um, schools have gotten away with having it both ways, calling it educational and in service of students 
and then running it ruthlessly like a business and also restricting athletes from engaging um, in various ways to make money. So um, yeah, it's it's been pretty cool to see. The sky has not fallen. <laughs> um, Along those lines though, I mean, in a, and I'm, I'm super interested to hear what, what you think the effects have been and, and clearly you're, you're, you're leading there with the, with, with the fact that the sky has not fallen, but that was the rhetoric coming out of the NCAA. And we've heard this over and over and over. Like uh, I think back to, to, to the early 1970s when Title IX was passed and Walter Byers, the head of the NCAA, just throwing up his hands and going before Congress and saying, look, you know, if this actually applies to sports and we have to start funding women's sports programs, I predict the doom of intercollegiate athletics and nothing could have been further from from the truth. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Any any change to the status quo, we get these doomsday. We won't be able to run this football will die um, because that's what the schools care about. Even a school like UNC, Chapel Hill, Tobacco Road, basketball, Michael Jordan, Dean Smith, um, you know, it's, it's football <laughs> that matters from an institutional perspective. And, you know, I saw this in the archives and in the conversations that were happening and um, at the local level, you know, UNC athletics administrators and um, the chancellor at the time were lobbying people like Jesse Helms to try to get an exemption for revenue generating sports because you know the having to share any sort of revenue that football brings in with others will will kill it and and now the irony is that um you know we get these but what about title nine arguments again it's the defense of the status quo will throw anything out to try to protect the way we're running this the business now um and if that means claiming we care about gender equity even though we clearly don't if if we're looking at the way <laughs> the men's and women's basketball tournaments were operated last spring. Um, you know, if, if it means defending the enterprise, then we'll be happy to make that, that sort of argument, yeah. And Victoria, j just a quick note about uh, Title IX itself. Uh, again, among the many uh, claims for why we couldn't do NIL was that it would be unfair somehow to women athletes. And it turns out that lots of women athletes are cashing in in a huge way now that right it's aren't the two that the twin sisters who are are they volleyball players I think that they're mm -hmm. making tons of money now that nil is a possibility so it's in other words it's working out just fine for women athletes and I think that was its own kind of sexism that somehow there wouldn't be a market for women athletes to be attractive to sponsors or communities or whomever. And so that's, that just seems like one more lie that was clearly exposed by the, the beginning of this new era. That's right. And, you know, again, just because I like to complicate everything, um, like which women are benefiting from this um, and, you know, the dynamics that we see in women's professional sports historically I think we're gonna be able to capture in the collegiate space too, once we get a better sense of the overall scope of who is getting these opportunities. And it's it's this, inter if we're thinking about social media um, and, and that kind of sector of NIL opportunities, like which women are getting the influencer opportunities. And, you know, that that's not necessarily um, something we should be celebrating. So Victoria, I, 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 I 
think I know exactly what you're saying here. And Jonathan, I don't know who these volleyball players are, what you're talking about, but I'm going to take a wild guess that they're attractive. Is, is, is that what you're talking about here, Vic, Victoria, about the types of opportunities that are being available to, to female athletes? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not exclusively like, you know, the male gaze that's driving um, who's getting social media opportunities. Um, because, you know, the, the, the space of women's team sports is very diverse and inclusive and celebratory and works very hard to be intentional around that. Um, but yeah, if we're looking at like, you know, partnerships with Barstool, for example, like who's getting Barstool <laughs> um, engagement opportunities. So there, there's that kind of component to this too. All that said, like that doesn't justify the restrictions that had been in place prior, nor does it um, suggest that we should be doing any sort of work from the university perspective of like trying to, you know, like control what is happening in this space. It, it really is athletes who need to be driving this. And the creativity that we're seeing, um, you know, beyond social media engagement or endorsement deals, like t-shirts, swag, um, and then like athletes who are donating either all of the proceeds from their shirts or a portion of them to nonprofit charities. Like there's a lot of um, intentional work and fundraising that's happening through this that I think people weren't necessarily anticipating too. And again, for me, it's just a nice reminder of the brilliance of our young people who are playing sports and how they're engaged in the community and how they're thinking about social responsibility and the platform that they have and, and leveraging NAL opportunities um, to use that platform for various causes that they're passionate about um, really is, is a celebration of what college is, right? And um, so that, that's been nice to see too and a nice pushback against the idea that, you know, athletes who are advocating for this were selfish and self-serving and they're not good teammates. Um, you know, the, the way they've been intentional around kind of social embeddedness and using NIL in that way is, is, is pretty, pretty darn cool. And, and Victoria, the, I mean, back to your original point about the sky not falling. One of the ar arguments that Mark Emmer, the head of the NCAA, has made for many years, as have all of his allies, is that one meaning of the sky falling is that if college athletes are paid in some form, fans will not be interested anymore. What attracts college sports fan to college sports is precisely the fact that the students are, quote unquote, amateurs who don't make money. And from everything I can see, so far this fall, football stadiums are full and fans are as enthusiastic as ever about college sports. And when I'm watching Sam Howell, the UNC quarterback, I mean, whatever, they're having a disappointing season, but run around on a Saturday night on television, I'm not thinking about the fact that he's now making money in terms of my experience of watching that. So that, 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 Again, I think those of us who were skeptics of the NCAA sort of knew that that was a, a crap line uh, to be blunt about it. But watching it play out has certainly, I think, affirmed that no one really cares fundamentally 
that these athletes are now making money. You know, it's funny because Matt, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot too. One, and you too, Jonathan, like these are the arguments we heard about the end of amateurism in the Olympic movement. Like nobody's going to care to watch the Olympics if it's the dream team playing in Barcelona in 92. And I mean, the dream team in Barcelona was kind of the story (laughs) of those games. Um, But yeah, I I think I, I really like you bringing up fans, Jonathan, um, for two reasons. The first is this, this really um, serves to underscore what, who football is serving. And football is not serving <laughs> athletes who play football. Football is serving students. It's part of the collegiate experience. And you know, a fan isn't gonna lose interest because they're not, they don't care about the identity of the athletes on the field being enrolled college students. Going to a football game makes you think of your own college experiences and what it means to go to college. And I think that's a big reason why we saw pandemic football last fall. Um, You know, your conference, the ACC played other sports in the fall, but my conference only played football. The Pac-12 and also the Big Ten only played football. And that really suggests um, that this sport is serving the industry of higher education as much as it's serving the, the industry of college sports because you need your school on TV <laughs> um, to, to, to get families excited um, about you know, their, their prospective students or children potentially going to that university. Um, and so the identity of the athletes on the field isn't what makes college football exciting and sell, it's that it's affiliated with the idea of college. So even if those were professional athletes and we spun off college football, you know, and the Ohio State Buckeyes were still the Ohio State Buckeyes, um, but it was run independently of the university. Um, the traditions aren't going to go away. The generational attachments, it's going to look a lot like, you know, what we see with um, English and European football clubs and the songs and, you know, the shared history and all of that doesn't, it's not like that would disappear overnight. Um, and then the other thing, thinking about fans is, something that really frustrates me about antitrust law. And that is the, the, the people who are being protected, the market that's the consumers that are being protected in college sports should be the students. If this is educational and serving students, we should be talking about antitrust in a way that is talking about how college sports serve students, but we're not, we're talking about fans. <laughs> and that really gives away <laughs> That this is a professional sports entertainment industry, <laughs> that it's not an educational enterprise, when even the way we've structured antitrust law and the way that these cases are discussed in federal courtrooms is about fan interest. That is wild to me and something we should be paying a lot more attention to. It just it occurs to me as you said that, Victoria, that's such a great point about fans versus students, that it is an astonishing triumph of propaganda that what has become a multi-billion dollar industry <laughs> got away with claiming that it was an amateur enterprise for some, it's, it's, it's amazing. Well, and, and we still have guys like Davos Sweeney, you know, talking about this. And Jonathan, I just wonder, you know, how many more Clemson losses until Davos Sweeney blames his poor football season on, on NIL? I'm, that's a great I'm question. sure it's coming. You know, yeah. one more loss. I think that's that's the over under there. Well, Victoria, I wanted to ask you something about NIL, and I, I can't remember if this was something that you tweeted or if it was an essay that you you wrote. I literally read everything that you put on uh, Twitter. You 
you you describe NIL as as actually pretty narrow, and you said that we're 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 focusing on branding and we're focusing on on monet on um, the monetization of uh, athletes' images. But we should be paying attention to the larger issue of the rights of athletes. And I was wondering when you said that when you talked about the rights of 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 athletes, if you could say a little bit about what you meant when you when you said that. Yeah, um, you know, Ramogi Huma was testifying today for the umpteenth time before um, yet another congressional committee and hearing in Washington. And he was talking about expanding name, image, and likeness to bring in like shared standards and increased spending on um, health and wellness. Um, Victoria, I'm sorry, just to interject quickly, Ramogi Huma is the head of a college athletes advocacy organization. Yeah, the National Collegiate Players Association. Yep, and also kind of getting an infrastructure in place in case athletes are able to kind of collectively bargain and maybe not necessarily unionize, but form a trade association to do things like have group licensing and that. So um, he's both, um, you know, a leader in advocacy and also getting ready for what's coming next um, and, and helping in a trade association capacity. Because, you know, the athlete turnover is part of what's um, made it so hard to organize athletes. You're only in college for four years or six in my case. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and so having, having that built out and ready to go is part of what Ramogi has been working on. But um, yeah, educational protections. Um, so Alston, of course, has helped dramatically in allowing schools to spend more on educational opportunities. And hopefully this is kind of opening the door to getting more innovative around what athlete education can be and um, more focused on, you know, if, if somebody does have professional aspirations, like it shouldn't be a violation of amateurism to be taking that seriously and getting that athlete ready for that. And then, and I'm coming back and, you know, if you want a graduate degree or if you want a different undergraduate degree, because the one, you know, you know, your major turns out it, it was the easiest way to stay eligible in player sport. But now that you're 26 and retired from the NFL, it turns out you really want to do this other thing. Like we should be allowing those athletes to return at any point and get as many degrees as they'd like. Well, J <laughs> just, just on that point, J.R. Smith, the longtime NBA star, who was in the, one of the final cohorts of players who did not have to go to college, was able to go directly to the NBA, is now taking college classes and tweeting about it. And it's kind of wild and amazing <laughs> to hear him report. He's, uh, what is he, like 35 years old now or something? Maybe not quite. And so anyway, it's a, been interesting just to see him talk about his his discovery of college at this relatively late date. And he's a college athlete. He's he's on the golf team at NCANT and his, you know, thanks to NIL, he, he still gets paid from the, um, you know, his notoriety as, as a basketball player, um, but that doesn't matter anymore. And, you know, the person who this this harmed and who was one of the first athletes to fight it was Jeremy Bloom, who, um, you know, played a college sport, but was taking endorsement money just to fund travel and training um, as a Winter Olympic sport athlete. And so in two different sports and that money for his Winter Olympic um, skiing career 
painted him enough that he was no longer amateur to play football. And, you know, he sued and um, has been a, a leader in um, advocacy and, and reform ever since. Um, but the, the other part um, is the media rights and um, corporate partnerships and the, the TV money that that really has ballooned, um, you know, because live sports are the only the, the most, the biggest industry that people still watch live. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing right now um, a huge fight for Premier League rights because um, that, that really is the thing that people tune into. And so you, you make the most money in selling ads um, through these very popular sports leagues. And so um, that money, like football money <laughs> from the conference and school, perspective and basketball money from the NCAA perspective, like that money deserves to stay with football athletes and basketball athletes because it, those two sports are professional sports, sports entertainment industries. And, you know, I, I am in line with Ramogi when he says, you know, it needs to be 50-50 revenue sharing sport by sport. And that resolves the potential Title IX complications when it's okay, 50-50 revenue sharing in every single sport. And then schools can decide what they wanna do with the other 50%. If that means subsidizing and investing in non-revenue sports, great, but all of that money shouldn't be transferred anymore. And um, so that, that's kind of the next step here. And then, you know, the, the seat at the table part <laughs> um, that, that um, you know, we've seen kind of attempts to expand athlete representation. Um, but really, I think it needs to be in a more organized way that recognizes labor rights um, when we're talking about the revenue generating sports. Victoria, you, you've been talking about how um, football is for everyone except for really the, the football players. And I thought you made a you, you made a point over the summer, you know, as we're all hunkering down, getting all excited to watch the Olympics. I know you were watching, you, you were at the Olympic trials, I believe, making some offers. That must have been absolutely thrilling. Um, and you you wrote a piece in which uh, I think like your piece on how sport is the new Jim Crow, you know, really made me think differently about the sports system. Actually, with this this the second piece, as soon as I read the opening line, I thought, of course, but why haven't I thought about it in these terms? The the argument that that you made, or really just what you were pointing out, is that college football doesn't, you know, just fund uh, the Olympic sports at colleges and universities. It funds the United States Olympic Committee um, because it develops these, these athletes. Was that something you had thought about a lot? Or was it like me when I read your piece, I had an aha moment where you're watching the Olympics and you just kind of put all these pieces together. And maybe as while answering this, talk a little bit about what your overall um, point was in that, in that really excellent essay. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure when I got the idea of this big thesis that, you know, football athletes are paying for the world's Olympic development. Um, I, I think a couple of things kind of came to a head. One is that I've been thinking more and more about the problem of football um, and particularly how we got here. And when the world's game is soccer and when ours is American football and when college sports are built up around American football, it makes us very domestic and insular and inward focused. 
that means that we're not kind of keeping up with the changes taking place in other sports industries elsewhere because of, it, it enables the quirkiness <laughs> that we have in um, both youth sports and Olympic development and you know the development for professional leagues in the United States as well. So that plus um, all the stories and um, you know, conversations taking place last fall when hundreds of college teams were being cut. And that exposed, you know, it's pretty rotten business practice that anytime there's an economic downturn, you cut hundreds of sports. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, that was part of the anxiety around Title IX too. The 70s, we had a pretty dramatic recession. And so the cost of, you know, Minnesota's football team to travel and play a big 10 rival in, in Iowa like doubled <laughs> over just the period of like one year um, with the inflation that was happening. So yeah, I mean these every time there's an economic downturn, it exposes um, that athletic departments are in the business of spending money. And when you aren't anticipating a global pandemic, <laughs> um, you're gonna have budget shortfalls, especially if you don't play football. Um, and so these anticipated budget shortfalls were what triggered schools to start cutting all these Olympic sport teams. Um, and so that, um, introduced me to um, the people who were fighting for the restoration and protection of Olympic sports and as a track and field athlete and knowing that men's teams have been cut over the years. Um, you know, that was something that that I was aware of, but um, yeah, this, this connection um, is really fascinating. We don't have any intentionality around national governing body and college sport Kind of collaboration or um, a recognition among NGBs that the, the vast majority of the most important Olympic development is happening on American college campuses. And there's opportunity there. <laughs> um, this is where I think we have an opportunity to detach the dependence of Olympic sports on football, to completely detach ourselves from that and see that there is value in what we do both from a college perspective and also from kind of an Olympic development perspective, um, Congress, um, and that, you know, a lot of these college campuses are public and there's public monies coming through these spaces. So I think it even opens the door to reconsidering the, the subsidization and funding model of the Olympic movement in the United States, which in, in many ways is a legacy of the Cold War. Um, you know, we have to exaggerate our differences with the Soviets and only have private funding of Olympic development in the US. I think there's an opportunity here to, to get intentional around the, the support of Olympic sports on college campuses and to recognize that we have many different industries operated under the umbrella of college sports. Victoria, just to, just to make sure that we, 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 have, we understand all the steps you're laying out here, the way that football funds the Olympic movement is that it brings a tremendous amount of money onto campuses, which allows those campuses to invest in a whole infrastructure of facilities, hiring coaches, et cetera. You said in this article that Matt referred to that you wrote for The Athletic this summer that there, there are no better facilities in the world for Olympic training than on American college campuses. So it's the fact that football is bringing in the money that's then being invested in all these other facilities 
for track and swimming and gymnastics. That is the right. That's the the, the causal arrow of, of of the argument that you're you're making. Yes, thank you for slowing me down there. Yeah, so I think there there's often um, much and and you know and it, this is good <laughs> attention on how um, athletes in football and basketball are paying for their coaches you know, escalating salaries, um, the facilities arms race and administrative bloating. But, um, you know, and, and Matt, you had mentioned that first kind of public intervention I made calling college sports Jim Crow and talking about the bifurcated system here that, that one part we haven't been talking about enough is that, that these athletes, their performances are also funding the non-revenue sports. And we're the ones who are more likely to benefit from collegiate amateurism. And then we're used to prop up the whole system. Um, and so, yes, because in, in the, the acceleration, especially in the power five, um, in the monies, the revenue generation, um, because of the autonomy move, because of conference realignment, because of TV deals, and because especially of the college football playoff, and that money staying with the conferences and the colleges, the, the, the dramatic increase in the money and then the pressure to spend that money that's coming in means that everybody else is enjoying it um, because you know football and basketball athletes had been artificially and illegally <laughs> capped. Um, and so you know, non-revenue sport coaches salaries increased in just a five-year period by 43%. Um, that's from Steve Berkowitz and the USA Today Sports um, team that does all the great research and provides us with all these data points. Um, and yeah, the facilities infrastructure is best in world. We have the best U23 development infrastructure in the world and you get a college scholarship to boot. And when you have coaches who are held to the standards of the professional sports entertainment industry that's being operated in football and basketball, they're hired and fired based on their ability to win too. And what that means is expanding the talent pool. So we have teams in the power five, and this is no knock on international athletes. I think it's great that they're taking advantage of these opportunities, but we have rosters in the power five conferences that are entirely international now. Um, and that, that tells us what this, what this system is. It's not to condemn those athletes. It's to point out, you know, it's best in world because it's football and basketball athletes performances and their money that's paying for this. If this were the era of the Cold War and Soviet athletes were coming to American universities and, and, and winning medals, maybe people would, would you know, uh, look, look twice at this system. But I, I, I was just so stunned watching Mondo Duplantis, you know, win a gold medal in the pole vault. He trained at LSU or Jasmine Camacho Quinn at the University of Kentucky and winning a gold medal for, for Puerto Rico. You know, I, we had this this interesting um, gold medal battle be with between the United States and and China. And so far, to my knowledge, there aren't too many Chinese athletes coming over and taking advantage of this American sports system. But if that were to happen, I think that might be a moment when people start to question this this system. How can we allow the Chinese to beat us? You know, in the Olympic medal count, uh, using the strategy of of the the American Olympic sports system. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it's interesting because we we saw Team USA um, coordinating with Power Five schools 
to share stats on their Olympians. And so we have schools where like 95% of the athletes, say there's 20 athletes from a school who are competing in Tokyo, 19 of the 20 are competing for other countries and not Team USA. So the, the stats here, um, I, by my numbers, 59% of um, the Olympic athletes who competed in Rio from the Power Five conferences competed for schools, for schools, for countries, um, not Team USA. So the, the number of athletes competing for Team USA were a pretty significant minority. And then at the same time, Team USA is, is celebrating that 80% of Olympians in Rio um, came through American colleges. But if we're thinking about that, that's actually kind of lower than it actually is because there's a lot of sports in the Olympics that are not participated in on college campuses. Right. So all the college sports, it's probably upwards of 90%. Um, but you know, there were 321 Pac-12 athletes in Tokyo. And if the Pac-12 were a country, they would have placed fifth in the medal count. And the Alliance, now that you and we and the Big Ten have joined forces to claim moral superiority to the SEC. World domination. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, collectively, our three conferences earned 194 medals. And, um, you know, that, that the majority of those were for other countries and not Team USA, or they were American team sports um, and women's American team sports, which we dominate because of Title IX and elite sport in schools and the billion dollar industry that Jonathan mentioned. So, yeah. And we've, you know, we, Matt referred to the article you wrote in 2019 about uh, Jim Crow and collegiate athletics. And we're talking now about football funding the Olympic movement. I don't think we've said explicitly, so it's worth saying explicitly in all of these cases, what we're talking about are predominantly black athletes generating the revenue they are through first football and secondarily basketball to benefit predominantly white athletes in the Olympic sports and then uh, at these predominantly white institutions more generally. And so when you talk about Jim Crow, this is sort of a Jim Crow system uh, you and others, that's what they're talking about. And it is, it's 2021 and it's kind of amazing that that's, that's what we're still talking about. And, and Victoria, to, to maybe um, add on here, I wanna ask you a question. And uh, all of the things I've seen you write about um, the problems with the, the, the college sports system, you, you constantly call for reform and reform between the relationship between football and um, uh, colleges and, and, and universities. I've never once heard you say that we should get rid of football. And more and more, as I look at these issues, that's often my solution to a lot of the problems that we see out there. You know, I think you can make the argument that, that college football just does not suit the educative mission of the, of the university. And I don't think it's a reason to have football that it, and I, I know you're not saying this, the reason to have football was not to fund the Olympic sports. Um, do you ever find yourself just questioning football? Oh yeah. Um, but I think if I were to say, and 
like be advocating and reaching out to Robert Gates, who's chairing the NCAA Constitution Convention and saying, let's just cut football now. Or, you know, I were to, to write my university president here at ESU and be like, let's lead the way in ending football. That's not very realistic. Um, I do like the Knight Commission's recommendation that football be separated and governed independently and football money kind of stays with football because I think that's an opportunity to spin off football. I think um, that that helps in a lot of ways. And I, I do think we need to reduce the number of colleges playing football. So the group of five needs to, you know, those universities need to think about if this is really something, um, a program that they want to um, support anymore because I don't think it's a good business model to, to have lots of university resources shifted over to athletics to have a lot of student fees go to subsidizing football and then to have your football team go and play one of these power five schools every year to fund your athletic department. Um, it's dangerous. It's already a dangerous sport that, as you said, you know, schools are in the business of developing brains and bodies and not harming brains. And the more we learn about football, the more it's inherent to the sport <laughs> that, um, you know, that, that it's harmful to brains, um, that CTE is what you get from blocking. Um, it's from those subconcussive hits, not the big concussions, um, which are also, you know, horrible and can cause traumatic brain injury. So I think um, the NFL <laughs> needs to get involved here too. And that athletic piece, I um, place the blame with colleges and, and kind of pushed back against the president of Notre Dame when he had said, you know, the NFL needs to start a minor league. And, you know, that's what the colleges are and they need to own it at this point. But that doesn't mean the NFL can't subsidize um, and, and be more coordinated. And this is what I'm calling for in all sports, that we need more, whether it's the professional league in the case of American football or the NGBs in the case of the other sports, more coordination. Um, yeah, and so if, if 10 years from now, there are 60 schools that have football programs in the Power Five, and there might be a couple group of five conferences that decide to continue it, but I think, you know, further out, those teams are gonna go away. It becomes an NFL minor league or really just a professional sports entertainment U23 football league. Um, and, and to make sure those athletes are financially <laughs> Um, getting what they deserve, educationally getting what they deserve, and have the, the proper health and safety um, structures in place too. I think I think that's what we need to do in that space. Yeah, so, right, so Victoria, you, you referred a, a few minutes ago to a hearing before Congress today, which was prompted, as I understand it, by a memo that was released yesterday, actually, uh, by the new senior counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, uh, who said yesterday that she has she determined has determined that under American labor law, college athletes are employees, um, and this is sort of the the final frontier, I think, of the NCAA's effort to maintain the status quo is to deny that status at all costs. So can you just talk about that a little bit? Um, and I know this, this is just 24 hours old and um, there's a lot of unknowns, but if you could just sort of walk us through a little bit what this, what this might mean. Yeah, um, so Jennifer Abruzzo, who's general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board appointed by Joe Biden. Um, in her memo, she, 
shared her prosecutorial, and I'm quoting here, prosecutorial position that certain players at academic institutions are employees under the act. Um, and then she also will allege, she's notifying that she will allege that misclassifying such employees as mere, quote, student athletes and leading them to believe that they do not have statutory protections is a violation of Section 8 of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and she puts student athletes in quotes, and this is, I'm going to shout out the Daily Tar Heel here, um, and has a, a beautiful footnote. Always read the footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> she writes, while players at academic institutions are commonly referred to as student athletes, I have chosen not to use that term in this memorandum because the term was created to deprive those individuals of workplace protections. And um, the reason I'm shouting out the Daily Tar Heel is because the editorial board of the Daily Tar Heel, made up of, of um, my understanding is some of Matt's former students, uh, <laughs> uh, wrote a, wrote a uh, column um, saying that the, the position of the paper is that they would no longer use the term student athlete and explain the history um, and the origins of that term, which was precisely to evade workers' compensation and industrial relations board um, ruling in favor, um, awarding injury benefits and death benefits to widows. Um, and, and, you know, Walter Byers himself, uh, you know, was, was part of the Ed O'Bannon team and um, just ruthless <laughs> testimony explaining um, how that was the intent of what he had done and why it needs to go away now. Um, yeah, so, you know, this is huge. And she references uh, the Northwestern University football players who had tried to organize in 2014 and 15 and how that was kind of tabled and it, it's, Clear that this is revisiting that. Um, and I think uh, this is going to be huge and it's, it's absolutely going to influence um, how conferences and universities um, and the NCAA and this constitutional convention proceed from here. There's going to be a lot of lobbying um, that we're going to see. We saw statements from the SEC. Um, we saw the commissioner of the Pac-12 accidentally reply to that tweet, like, ooh, this is good, should we do this too? <laughs> and deleted. Um, so yeah, we, we're, we're seeing an automatic reaction, which is in defense mode, but ultimately I think this will influence a forced uh, realization that um, athletes organizing efforts and labor rights um, do need to be protected. And, and just one last thing, there was something that I really appreciated in the memorandum, which was that she pointed to all the organizing going on in that, that um, pandemic summer and fall by athletes um, and pointed to that as these are employees. Um, and also, um, you know, they have multiple employers. They have their schools, their conferences in the NCAA. So she also, um, says, quote, joint employer theory of liability, that it's not just the schools, the conferences in the NCAA are complicit in this too. So very exciting stuff. I was really struck how she said how college athletes have been engaging in collective action with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I, I, I didn't expect that to be in there. Um, Victoria, is this the moment where the conversation pivots from NIL to a conversation about schools and universities actually having to pay their athletes for participating in the revenue sports? 
Yeah, I, I think revenue sharing is is the best way to get people on board with this. Um, and and having labor rights, a seat at the table, an ability to collectively bargain, um, group licensing, all of those things that we see in professional sports and the negotiations that happen between a players association and owners. Um, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna see that happening um, in the very near future. I would say to all the those college football players down in states like Mississippi and Alabama, you now have a lot of power. Um, you may have more power. I think I saw someone say you have more power than the Democratic Party has down in some of these states. So think about you know um, what can be be done here. This is going to be fascinating to watch it unfold. We we certainly could talk for another hour or two and. Um, if you're willing, we'd love to have you back on down the road. But thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to see some Tar Heels. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Victoria. <laughs> so this has been another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do rate it and share it and spread the word. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And until next time... Everybody take care.